if you would like to take a copy of the uh, handout and uh, follow along as we continue in our series on managing life, managing life God's way. All right, Matthew chapter number six, Matthew chapter number six. I need to run back up and grab my, my water. Uh, I'm sure I'll need that today. All right. So we have been spending some time in a series here on managing life. We will spend one more week in this particular series next Sunday. And then I've asked uh, Brother Earl to do a series of lessons. And so after next Sunday, uh, then Earl will, will teach a series. And then, uh, Lord willing, Dan Clark uh, will have a series uh, this spring as well. And so that is kind of what's coming up for our Sunday school time, and I appreciate these men being willing uh, to teach and for them to have opportunity. But uh, we are continuing in this series on managing life God's way. So we're in Matthew chapter number 6, and as we are looking at managing life God's way, today we will focus on priorities. Priorities. Now, I don't have a dictionary definition of priorities to put up on the screen. And I don't have a Greek or a Hebrew word to explain, but I want some feedback. What would you say is meant by the word priority or priorities? What are, what are we talking about when it comes to priorities? We talk about it a lot, but what is it, Nat? To place in order of importance. To, pla- to place in order of importance, exactly. Okay, anybody else have a similar... Thought or what's that? Necessities. Necessities, good, okay, necessities. A lot of us would probably have in our uh, jobs or even around the house, we might have certain things that we write down or we have a list or we have, I know sometimes as men, we get a honey-do list and uh, there might be some things and our wives remind us And we put off and we put off and we say, well, when the weather gets nice, right? And then we go for the easy task first and then we put off the harder one. Or sometimes it comes down to budget and money and and expertise and all that. But we've tried to teach our kids, and I know I was often told this, when it came time to do a project, when it came time to do homework, if it came time to do a research paper, don't wait to the last minute. Don't procrastinate. And do the hard thing first. When you come home from school and you have homework, just go ahead and do your math or your science first, right? Just get the hardest thing out of the way, and then you can... <laughs> I'm, getting a, I'm getting a quizzical look from Dan over there. <laughs> but we, we, we would choose or we would try to uh, encourage our kids, and, and I know I've not always done the best at this, but... Uh, go ahead and, and do the harder, harder homework assignment, the harder assignment first. Or get started on that project early. Don't wait to the last couple days to do your research for a paper and then try to, uh, to turn it in. Uh, nowadays, they have all these online uploads that kids can do. So it can be turned in at 11.59 in 59 seconds. And Sam's back there cheering. I think you've done that. <laughs> I've done that a couple times in a in an online class that I was taking, but uh, it used to be that we had to get 
the paper turned in during class, or sometimes our professors would let us turn our paper in by like 10 p.m. if we went over to the classroom building, the alumni building, and if we slipped our paper into the teacher's box, we had to have it there by a certain time. But usually we had to turn in by class time. Now you can wait till almost midnight and upload it. But priorities, so important. We think of them when it comes to work, when it comes to academics, when it comes to so many things, projects around the house. But what about our spiritual priorities? What about our spiritual life? What about our moral life? It seems like sometimes that is kind of put on the back burner. We have priorities for all these other things, and yet our spiritual life, our moral priorities, ah, we might think of them around December 29th, December 30th, the New Year's coming, resolutions, and maybe that's about the only time of the year we get serious. Or when we have a crisis, and that's a time where we should reevaluate when there's a trial. But what about our priorities on a regular, everyday basis? Do we set the right priorities? And how do we set the right priorities? And who establishes the right priorities? And by what belief system, by what standard do we set our priorities? So Matthew 6, 21 and 33. I know this is a a section from the larger sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But Matthew 6 and verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your what? Be also. There will your heart be also. We know that's in the context of laying up treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal, but our priorities are often determined by our treasure, what we treasure. What do we want the most? And we know what goes on in our culture today and what often sets the priorities, what often sets the standards for people's lives. But we see that where our treasure is, that ultimately reveals where our heart is. And then go down to verse 33. We know this verse well. But seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God. There's that eternal perspective, that heavenly perspective. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So we see very clearly that this priority of seeking first the kingdom of God involves a heavenly and eternal perspective. But notice in verse 33, and his righteousness. Who's the standard then for the priorities, the moral and the spiritual priorities? Who sets the standard? Who is the standard? Christ. Here again we see, be holy for I am holy. We see the standard of righteousness and with the Lord's help, by His grace, striving as Paul talks about in Philippians 3, in pressing toward the mark. And we have a finish line in certain types of race, races, competitions. There's going to be a basketball game this afternoon, and the goal is to have more points by the end of the game than the other team. We have all these obvious goals and, and, and focus, 
But it seems like in our, our, our spiritual life, we get so lackadaisical. Oh, well, I'm a Christian. I've got my fire insurance. Oh, well, um, God loves me for all eternity. And yes, he does. But does that mean that we should be lazy about our Christian life? That we should be complacent? That we should be casual? Again, the, the illustration of an athlete who is just determined to be the best athlete, to be better. I think of, a, again, I, I can't help but think of men like Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. I don't know about LeBron James. I don't know about his work ethic. I would assume he's had a, a good work ethic to be able to play so many years in the NBA. But some of these better athletes who have risen above, I mean, think of a Larry Bird who didn't have all the talent in the world, but he worked at his game. I see athletes, I see musicians, I see all kinds of people who work at excelling, at being the best in their skill, in their trade, in whatever it is. And yet, so many of us as Christians were, were put to shame because we don't have nearly that kind of fervency of spirit, that kind of work ethic when it comes to our spiritual life. And we even go all the way back to the first commandment, which is what? Thou shalt have... No other gods before me. Nothing between us and our Savior. And so we have all of these verses, all these principles, all these commands that help us in setting the standard for the priorities of our life. But we're going to go to Matthew 6 and verses 8 through 15. And we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer, or it's sometimes referred to as the Disciples' Prayer. And... It's literally in response to a question, uh, and as Jesus is teaching, uh, Lord, teach us to pray, but when ye pray, Matthew 6 and verse 7, Jesus goes on to say, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking, okay? Incantations, repetitions, there's various false religions that have certain kinds of prescribed prayers. I'm not saying it's wrong for a church to have a prayer book. I know good churches that will have a prayer book and they'll use some sort of guided prayer. I understand that there are some places that, that do that and they're good gospel preaching churches. And there are certain denominations that they publish books of prayer. And I'm not saying that that's, that's wrong. But it shouldn't be just about rote, repetitious formulaic prayers. He's obviously drawing a contrast between biblical Christianity and our prayers to our Heavenly Father and those of the false religions and these spiritists, as well as the outward formalities and the showy prayers that the, 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 excuse me, the Pharisees would, would give. And we know the one prayer that is used as an example of the publican and the, the Pharisee. The publican cried out, have mercy upon me, O God, a sinner. And the Pharisee is out there saying, I'm glad I'm not like other men. And I, I give my tithes and I'm not like this publican. Okay, And they would even go out in the street corners, from what I understand. And they would offer up prayers or in the temple. And they would offer up prayers that would clearly be for show. For everybody to see, for everybody to think how, oh, wow, they must really be spiritual because listen to them pray. And I remember Dr. Bob uh, Jr., uh, he, was, he, was, he was teaching us in, 
in Preacher Boy's class, and he said, men, he said, when you pray before a meal, keep it short and keep it quick. Get to the point. Don't pray for all the missionaries. Don't pray for everybody in the church. He said, everybody is there to eat, not listen to you pray. And he said, as a matter of fact, if you have a long prayer, they're not going to be listening to you anyway. They're, they're ready to eat. They're thinking about the food they're going to eat. You know, so I, I appreciated Dr. Bob uh, Jr. and uh, his, his simple, short little way in which he could instruct us about keeping prayer short before a meal. And uh, don't be there to, to show off and to... Uh, to make everybody think how spiritual you are by your, your public prayer. Now, we have prayer times, public prayers. We have prayers for uh, individuals. We give requests. There are times where we have lengthier prayers. But the point is that it shouldn't be for show. It shouldn't be for just showing off and making everybody think that we're spiritual because we have this eloquent prayer with all the right words and repetitions. And then he says... Verse 8, be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth things ye have need of before ye ask him. The Father knows, but he still desires for us to pray. He knows, but he still wants us to pray. He still wants us to come before him and to give supplication and to give praise and to give thanksgiving and to pour out our hearts and to come boldly before the throne of grace. He desires that of us. I can't help but think as a father, there are times where I know what my kids need. There are times where it's obvious, but isn't it, isn't it special when they come and they come in a spirit of please dad, please mom, and there's a humility and there's a, a, a dependency. And, and, and we appreciate that when our children do that. How much more does our heavenly father appreciate and desire for us to come in humility and dependence and trust in prayer, even though he knows what our needs are, yet he desires for us to come to him. And what a, what a gracious Heavenly Father and compassionate Heavenly Father we have who desires that of his children. So we see in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus focused on the heart. Jesus wants changed hearts. He wants prioritized hearts. He wants hearts that reflect heavenly, eternal perspectives. As he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he often deals with the heart. You have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. And oftentimes he takes it from the outward and he says, yes, those might be good things to do on the outside, but he takes it further and he goes to the heart. And he deals with our hearts throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And then he gets to this part of the Sermon on the Mount and he deals with prayer and it helps us in understanding our priorities as we work our way through this prayer. So who was the Lord's prayer addressed to? Who was the Lord's prayer addressed to? What's the beginning of the prayer in verse number 9? After this manner, therefore, pray ye. What was that again? Our Father. Who is the prayer? The Lord's prayer addressed to? Our Father, which art in heaven. Our Father, which art in heaven. So we see that we pray to the Father. We see Him in His place in heaven, in His place of preeminence, His place of sovereignty, His place of providence, His place where He rules and He reigns, where we then come to Him in humility and dependence. 
And we pray to the Father with the help of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and verse 26, Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There we see the work of the Holy Spirit, the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. John 14 and verse 13, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So we pray to the Father with the help of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at six perspectives. Six perspectives from the Lord's Prayer. Six perspectives from the Lord's Prayer for us as believers. First of all, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven with God, the creator, controller, and sustainer of life. Philippians 3, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, it's there on the screen, and we know these verses well. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So as we think of the Lord's Prayer and we think about our priorities, as we go through and we see these six six perspectives from the Lord's Prayer that apply to us and our priorities, we see that our citizenship is in heaven. Does that not affect our priorities? Does that not affect how we live? If our citizenship is in heaven, if that's our home and we're just pilgrims and sojourners, does that not have a widespread effect on what we value and what we set in, in, uh, in, in, in importance and what we place as priority in our life? It sure does. Our citizenship being in heaven with God, our Father, who's the creator, controller, and sustainer, that changes our whole outlook on life. That changes how we view a lot of things, doesn't it? That right there is a, a huge contributor to our priorities. Number two, our conviction should be that God is more than a friend who makes us feel good by lavishing us with everything that we want or that we think that we need. And this really hits home with where our culture is in this kind of therapeutic, sensual, feel-good-all-the-time culture that we live in. And it's not uncommon for a lot of religious people, for a lot of churches, to really fashion God as this genie in the sky who's really just about us making, making us feel good all the time, this therapeutic Jesus that we make God in our image. We make Jesus Christ out to be who we want him to be. And he's really then brought down to our level to being a good buddy, a teammate, a 
whatever. And he's just there to kind of help us get through life, make us feel good, pat us on the back. And it's that whole no judging, just Jesus kind of attitude. And it's really a false view of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. And it's, it's selling out entire stadiums with men and women who promote this kind of Jesus. And, and there's a, there's a, a, a big uh, get-together concert and religious ecumenical get-together coming to Indianapolis this month, and there's advertisements for it. And I look at it, and I'm disappointed at some of the people that are going to be there because I know who's sponsoring it, and the church that's sponsoring it doesn't teach the same Jesus that's the Jesus of the Bible. They teach a different Jesus. They use Jesus, they talk about Jesus, and they'll talk about the love of God, but it's a very prosperity gospel Jesus is there to make you feel good, give you everything that you want, you think that you need. But notice what we see here. The phrase, hallowed be thy name. I know that's an older word. We don't use the word hallowed quite the same way today that they would have used it back in the time of the King James translation. We think of hallowed more maybe in the sense of Halloween maybe or a scary building, a haunted house. But hallowed really doesn't, I know it's kind of taken on that meaning, but really hallowed means what? What is it referring to, Denny? Holy, sacred. And it embodies the idea of a fearful reverence. Okay, and that may be why somehow the word hallowed got uh, changed in our modern English uh, to more of a scary, mysterious type of, uh, of meaning. But the older English word hallowed, in, it, it's the word holy, but it involves a, a, a fearfulness, a reverence. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, holy be thy name. That's the very beginning of the prayer. Does that not establish priorities? Citizenship and conviction about who God is. So how should understanding who God is impact our priorities? There's all kinds of practical applications of this. It should affect how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we love our spouse, how we raise our children, how we go about our work, what decisions we make when we come to buying and selling, when it comes to what we do with our our time and our free time. He is holy. He is to be reverenced. He is to be feared. And he watches over us he sees us he knows us there's nothing that is out from underneath his his view the eyes of the lord go to and fro uh, throughout the whole earth so we see this and it convicts us about our priorities we see this truth about our god and it convicts us about our priorities and then we see another perspective from the lord's prayer As we continue down in Matthew 6 and verse 10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We see, thirdly, that our culture is shared in common with God's family. So our priorities 
should reflect the attitudes, values, goals, and practices of God's heavenly, eternal kingdom. We are praying in the Lord's Prayer, in the disciples' prayer, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Is God's will being done in heaven? You better believe it is. So we are praying, as God's will is already being done in heaven, so may it be done here on this earth. And Lord, may I be a part of that, in fulfilling that, in obeying, in doing your will. And he is clearly establishing in this prayer a priority of our culture being shared in common with God's family, that believers should not be setting their priorities by the world's culture, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Our culture that affects our priorities should be established by the kingdom of God, the family of God. So, if we're not around God's people now, I realize we're all sinners. We all have our our warts. We all have our faults and our failures. We're all, as believers, in that progressive state, striving to be positionally, uh, as we are progressing in our, our, our Christian walk. But if we're more with the world, and we're more entertained by the world's entertainment, and we're more with people who are unsaved or maybe at the best carnal, if we're not in church, if our associations are mostly with people who are outside of Christ, what is going to happen to our culture of our life? What's it going to be established by? What's it going to look like? It's going to look like the world. It's going to be more representative of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In, in 1 Corinthians 14, what did Paul say? He said, evil communications corrupt good manners. Evil company corrupts good morals. And we're to walk with the wise and go not with an angry man, Proverbs says. If sinners entice thee, consent thou not. We're, we're warned frequently about our associations. But if you, if you run around with the pigs, what are you going to smell like? You're going to smell like swine. <laughs> you go to the fair and you go into the barn with the swines, you usually don't come out smelling like roses. If you are in the place with the different animals in the barn, you usually come out smelling more like the animals in the barn. But what is establishing the culture of our homes, of our families, of our life? Is it the kingdom of God? Or is it the kingdom of this world? We continue. Number four, our concerns should be expressed with the assurance that God will supply our daily needs. So as we get into this idea of perspectives that affect our priorities, in verse number 11, we see, give us this day our what bread? Daily bread. Now, what do we tend to do? Especially in a market-driven economy that we're in and being in one of the wealthiest times in all of human history, what is our tendency to do? Lord, give us this day and we can 
add all kinds of things to daily, right? We want the, we want the whole kit and caboodle. <laughs> we, want, we, want, we want it all. But are we, ever, are we ever satisfied? It seems like no matter how much we get, the more we want. And I can't remember if it was Rockefeller or one of those, those guys who said years ago that uh, when he was asked, what do you want? He said, just $1 more. Just $1 more. He's always looking for the next big payday. And so if we're not careful, we don't trust God for our daily needs. Our daily what? Our daily needs. Exactly what we need for this time. We want this and that. And again, our priorities then become dictated by this market-driven world. And we become covetous, and we become greedy, and then we end up making all of our decisions, if we're not careful, we end up making all of our decisions based on what is going to be the most productive for me materially and financially. So I was told when I was in Bible college and seminary, and then our, our, our pastor, Kelly and I, when we came on staff at our church, uh, Eagle Dale Baptist Church, Pastor Defoe, he had a requirement for pastoral staff that we not have a side business like, I don't know, what all is Yankee Candles and I don't know, all these different um, side businesses. He asked that us on pastoral staff and our wives that we not have a side business where we're handing out catalogs to people in the church where we're having, we could go to people's houses where they had those kinds of parties where, where they were selling uh, dough makers and I forget all the different things that are out there, okay? Mary Kay, um, I don't know, Avon, all that kind of stuff. He asked that we not, why? Why, why did Pastor Defoe, because he didn't want us to have a ministry that was based on dollar signs. So I'm looking around, and I'm saying, okay, there's the rich family in the church. They have a dollar sign. I'm going to minister to them. I'm going to make sure I focus my, why? Because Pastor Foe knew we would start making our ministry decisions based on who could give us the most money. And I'm so glad he had that standard. I'm so glad he, he taught us that. And I was taught that even in Bible college. Because it, it's very dangerous for us to begin prioritizing people and ministry and who we like and don't like based on material standards. That's what the world does. What is communism, Marxism, socialism all about? We're all just cogs in a wheel with dollar signs on our head and we function in an economic, as an economic unit for the good of some dictator, for some totalitarian whoever. That's what it is. China, that's what people are. People are dollar signs, cogs in a wheel. They're an economic unit. Where has that now led? Look at all the evil and the corruption to the point now that they are begging women to have babies because they are losing their population over two million in reduction in their population china had in the last year two million and they have an aging population there are fewer young people to take care of the well anyway they look at people as economic units 
And we get into that in America if we're not careful. We, we have to be very careful. That's the way a lot of this is seen. Even when it comes to having children. and We're, at, we're below the, the, the birth rate now in America. We're under 2.1 even in America. We're not even replacing ourselves. What does that say about Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid? But we're, we've, we've devalued and dehumanized humanity, people. We don't see people as made in the image of God with dignity. They're economic units. They're here to uh, serve us. And we've got to be very, very careful um, in how we, how we view uh, the, the blessings, the material possessions. We spent the whole lesson last week talking about giving and the, the proper principles of Stewardship of all of our resources, all of our resources, but trusting God to supply our needs. Philippians four verse nineteen. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And He says that in the context of giving. Philippians four. If we look at the, if we had time to take a look at the context, He's talking about the Philippians being good givers. And in that context, he says, as you prioritize the stewardship of all of your resources that God already owns, then God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I know that there's promises and principles about how God will take care of his people, about the righteous not begging bread and and, and, and we understand those principles. God takes care of his people, but how many times do we get out of whack in our material possessions and priorities in our view of wealth and we become greedy and covetous and we begin to even devalue people and treat people differently based on their economic status when we need to trust the Lord that he is going to supply our needs. Ultimately, we depend upon him. God will take care of us without us having to resort to hoarding a vast quantity of material possessions, which ultimately just reflects our insecurity about our future and reflects our lack of trust in God. Questions or, or comments there before we move on to the last two? Yes, Nat. It does. Yeah. If we are citizens of heaven, then that, again, that is, the, in a sense, the overarching principle that affects everything else. The rest of it falls in line. You're right. So number five, our contrition must reflect an understanding that we must confess sin. Notice in Matthew 6, in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, we use, we're used to using the word debt and debtors in the financial sense. But this word debt, this debt and debtors, is actually used in the moral sense, in the spiritual sense. We need forgiveness of our sins. It's the debt of our sin so as a believer, in our priorities, 
There needs to be a contrition about our life. Again, this goes against the grain of our culture, which is full of arrogance. And I'm going to get what I want, when I want, how I want it, the way I want it. And you just have to get out of my way. No, this is humility that says, I don't always have it right. And when it's pointed out and when God convicts me or when I'm confronted, I got to get right with God. I've got to maybe ask a brother or sister in Christ to forgive me. How many times do we have to do this in our marriages? Just in relationships in general, but particularly in our marriages. What if we never took the time to fix things between us? What if we ignored the principle of Ephesians 5, 22, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God? What if we just say, well, that doesn't, all I, all I like is husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands. But if we don't apply submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, our marriage is going to be on the rocks. Before long, it'll be a practical divorce. Two people living in the same house, but going their own separate way and doing their own thing. That's sad when that happens. But what about relationships in general? What about our relationship with God? What is 1 John 1, 9? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we understand that those are present participles? If we keep on confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to keep forgiving us of our sins and to keep cleansing us from all unrighteousness. What is John saying? We're sinners. We are positionally in Christ, but we sure mess up a lot in the progress of our faith to become what we already are positionally in Christ. We don't always do it right. We, we mess up along the way. we got to be confessing. We have to have a confessional attitude. We need to be constantly aware of where we have failed our God. Why, why does David say, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins? Because David knew, even as a man after God's own heart, that sometimes he is guilty of just presuming upon God, running ahead of the Lord and doing his own thing. And he has to back up and say, you know what? I didn't really counsel with the Lord on that. I got ahead of the Lord and he has to confess. And we know we really got ahead of God and just downright disobeyed God, didn't he? With Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and other times. But clearly in those times of adultery and murder. And then we read in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Wouldn't it change our priorities about a lot of things if we have that kind of attitude about our sinfulness? That we need to be regular confessors, regular evalu evaluators. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul calls upon the church at communion, at the Lord's table, to examine ourselves. That's one of the reasons we do the Lord's table every other month, at least every other month. Because it's important for us as a church family to come together as we observe the Lord's table and to examine ourselves. That is a holy, solemn occasion. It's not a sacrament. It doesn't earn us favor with God. It doesn't score us points to get the great scoreboard in the sky so we can win with Jesus. That's not the point. The communion, the Lord's table, 
is a time of solemn reverence and respect as we memorialize the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it points again to our need to examine ourselves so that we don't come to the Lord's table with unconfessed, unrepentant sin and then suffer the consequences of that. So forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors, those who sin against us or those who we sin against. We have to accept forgiveness from those who come to us, and we have to have a forgiving spirit, even if they never come and ask for forgiveness. We are to have a forgiving spirit so that if they do come, we've already forgiven them. I had somebody come to me a couple years ago from our former ministry and was, was visiting here. He pulled me aside afterward and he said, please forgive me for this. And I said, I've already forgiven you. I forgave you a long time ago. But thank you. All is forgiven. It's under the blood. That was huge in our relationship. We have to do that. And sometimes we're the offender. And we have to say those words that are extremely hard to say sometimes to certain people. Please forgive me. I was wrong. You know how it is with the politicians. I was actually surprised. Lloyd Austin actually apologized. I don't know if I've heard a politician apologize in the last, I don't know how many years. But Lloyd Austin actually apologized for not communicating with the White House when he went into surgery. I was like, good for him. His, my respect for him went up just by the fact that he was willing to get in front of the camera and say, I was wrong for not communicating with President Biden when I had my surgery and went into the hospital. I about fell over. I didn't know politicians ever did anything wrong. I thought they were always right, and even if they're wrong, they just blame it on someone else and figure out a way to, you know, you know how it works, right, in politics. But we are guilty sometimes of being like politicians and never asking for forgiveness when we know we've done wrong. What a way to heal relationships when we practice this priority of contrition. And then there's a couple of questions there. I'm kind of forgetting to, to click on the screen. I apologize. But there's some questions there that we can ask. Um, who is watching our testimony? Obviously, the unsaved. And how can we set our priorities to making and building disciples? Obviously, relationships, forgiveness goes a long way. I'm skipping through so we can get to the last point since we're almost out of time here. But verses 13 through 15, we see, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if ye forgive men their trespasses, your, Father, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It goes along with what we were just talking about. But finally, number six, our commitment. This reflects our attitude toward our Heavenly Father's priorities for our lives. The Heavenly Father sets our priorities. We've looked at five already. What is our priority of commitment? How committed? How willing are we to follow through? To change our perspective, to change some things about our life, to submit certain areas to our life, to reevaluate what we're doing with our time, how we're spending our money, how we're handling our, our relationships. Our commitment reflects our attitude. What is the perspective here at the end of the prayer? And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What's the perspective? What's that? Eternity. Heaven. The Father's. The Father's kingdom. Which goes all the way back to verse 10. Thy kingdom come. At the end, in verse 13. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. All men. The perspective is right back to our Heavenly Father, an eternal perspective. And we see that as we are committed to our Heavenly Father and to His priorities, then without Him we can do nothing, John 15 and verse number 5. When we get into trials and temptations, what does He do? What does He promise in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13? That He provides a way of escape. That way of escape may be through that trial. What is God doing in our lives as we go through that trial? We can trust Him because we got the right priorities. We have the right attitude toward our Heavenly Father. And then Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And then we go on in Romans 12 and verse number 2. and uh, It talks about uh, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not being conformed to this world, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's our expected service as a living sacrifice, as He transforms our mind, renews our mind, and we conform to His will. Then we come down to the end of the prayer and we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why would he pray, as we come to a, a close here, why would he pray, lead us not into temptation? It's not a temptation to sin. Excuse me. It's not a sin to be tempted. I'm not thinking clearly. Sorry. That's where my clogged sinuses are not clicking. It's not a temptation to sin. I can't say it. Ah, it's not a sin to be tempted. We can't keep the bird from flying over our head, but we can keep the bird from making a nest in our hair, is what Martin Luther said. So if it's not a sin to be tempted, then why does he say, lead us not into temptation? What's he saying? Because that trial, that temptation to sin, if we're not trusting the Lord, if we're not seeking the Lord, and we're not having the right priorities, then that trial, that Temptation could result in sin. So, Lord, in this life, in these various trials, in these sometimes literal temptations to sin, Lord, keep me from sin. Don't let me go in that way of temptation to sin. Though I may be tempted, Lord, don't let me fall into sin. Don't let me go. Let me have the right priorities. Let me choose uh, your way and your will. And Glorify your name. Yes. Yes. That's, that's a great point in having our minds, having a, the defense of our minds, casting down every imagination, every high thing. Exactly. And having the mind of Christ and renewing our mind, as Romans 12, 2 talks about. Good point. Any closing comments? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and this lesson. Help us, Lord, to have the right priorities for our lives. Pray that you'll bless the service to follow. Pray that, Lord, you will continue to guide and direct in our lives. And may, Lord, we be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. We'll start the service in about 15 minutes.